Would you pray with me, please? God, that is the prayer of our hearts, and we want it to be true of us. We want you to heal us. Heal the brokenness, heal the woundedness, heal the stubbornness that's in our hearts, and help us to follow you. We pray that together in Christ's name. Amen. I want to continue on with our series in Philippians, and I want to read out of chapter 3, starting with verse 12. Paul writes, Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but this one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those also who live as we do. For as often I have told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live their lives as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Well, good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. You sound a little more awake than the first service did. They were just kind of, it's later, thanks. I hadn't quite figured that out. I'm not quite awake myself. We are continuing this series through Philippians, and if you're just joining us, what we do each week is we take the next section of Scripture and we just teach whatever truth is there. And it was really fun to watch Darren deal with the passage he was dealt last week. Um, What we're discovering as we go through Philippians is that one of the overarching themes that Paul addresses in the book of Philippians is that God intends us to have a joy-filled life. Now, I need to do a bit of a rewind this morning because we really can't understand fully this section without going back and refreshing our memory what was said in the previous 11 verses. Now, just relax. I'm not going to talk about circumcision again. Yeah, just relax. Um, So this whole section break between verse 11 and 12 comes at a very awkward an unfortunate place in the chapter. And since many of us are new to the whole concept of just picking up the Bible and reading it, let me just mention that this whole chapter and verse thing that we have in our Bibles wasn't there in the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. Some of you may not be aware of that. That Paul, what he wrote to them was actually just one whole document, kind of like you would write a letter to somebody or you would send an email to somebody, a very long email you would send to somebody. 
The chapter breaks that we use today were added to the Bible in around the 13th century. They were put in essentially to take what was a long letter to the Philippians and break it down so that each chapter would essentially fit on a single printed page. There were several attempts to do that, but what we have began to stick around the 13th century. Then in around the 16th century or so, they broke the chapters down in verses. Just as a helpful way to reference, this was said at about this place so that people could find it. And while that's incredibly helpful to us as we study the Bible, so we can go find what somebody's referencing, it really can create some awkward breaks in a continuity of thought that the author had. And that's what happens in this passage today. So Paul starts a new line of thought with chapter 3. Verse 1, he says, rejoice in the Lord. That's a continuity of thought for the whole book. But he's starting a new trend of thought there because he starts to talk about what the source of our joy is. Darren talked about that last week. He says, our joy doesn't come from status symbols. It doesn't come from accomplishments in our life of any kind. That's not where we find our joy. In verse 7 of that chapter, then he goes on to talk about, with a burst of passion, kind of this soapbox speech that he gets on, he says we're to live with this singular focus to our lives. Paul looks back at all the accomplishments of his life before he knew Christ. Lists them out. Almost does kind of this ledger sheet thing, puts them on a balance sheet and says, this is everything that I did before I knew Jesus. And he puts knowing Jesus on the other. And he says, really? Everything over here is garbage compared to knowing Christ. Now, just a side note, that word garbage is a nice English word for the word Paul really used in Greek. It was kind of a street term. It was a garbage word. It was not something I could say. Actually, Westridge, I probably could. Um, I thought all week, I mean, what could I say here? And the closest I can get to the word would be like yard diamonds. You with me? Yard diamonds? You're there? You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, Paul was like saying, everything else is yard diamonds compared to knowing Christ. That may be the only verse of Scripture you memorize all week this week. Okay? That's literally what Paul was saying here. That's how much he disregarded everything before he knew Jesus. Now hang on to that idea, because that's the central theme of chapter 3. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And then passion just explodes out of him. He kind of goes over the top. It's almost like a rant he goes on. You can put all caps around this. In chapter 3, Paul goes so far in saying, I want to know Jesus so much that I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to participate in his sufferings so much so that I attain the resurrection from the dead. Let me ask you a question. Did you ever finish a job and have this overwhelming sense of pride about what you just did? You ever have that feeling? You bunch of underachievers? I mean, do you ever... I feel like Gordon up here. There's no response, you know? Do you ever finish a job and have a sense of pride? Yeah. Thank you. Told me you were awake, and then in three minutes I put you to sleep. You built something. You created something. You completed a long-term project. 
And you just felt good about it. You wanted to step back and admire it. You wanted people to rally around and cheer about what you just did. That's kind of the sense you get when Paul finished writing those phrases. Okay? I mean, it's like you can picture him sitting back and rereading those phrases and going, man, that is some serious Holy Spirit-inspired stuff. I mean, people are going to look at that ages from now and go, that's good. I mean, they're going to crochet that and put it on their walls. That's, it's going to be in plaques in Christian bookstores. That is going to be good stuff for centuries. And then he reads it and he rereads it and he lets the truth start to settle in. Truth is, you almost hear Paul saying, I wish I were as good at living it as I am at writing it. Because what happens in verse 12, when he starts to write, is he deflates any air of superiority or arrogance that his passion might have let on. He says, look, I don't want you to think I've already obtained this. Or that I've already arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And, you know, just in case you missed that, let me say it again. I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it, but this one thing I do. Forgetting what's behind, straining towards what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Twice. Twice. Right after each other, Paul says, don't misunderstand my enthusiasm. Don't misunderstand my passion to live a singularly focused life. I don't have it all together. But what I am doing is I'm doing my best to focus forward. I think one of the biggest enemies to living the Christian life, one of the biggest enemies to joy in our lives is when we fixate on our past. Paul could have done that. He could have made that choice. He had a very sordid past. He talked about it freely. Read his letters. You'll find it sprinkled all through them. In the book of Acts, when we read about his life before he became a Christian, he personally sought out and murdered lots of Christians. Heroes of the faith. Normal Christian people. Just because they were Christians. He personally witnessed the execution of heroes of the faith like Stephen. He stood and held the coats of people who murdered Stephen. Just another day for Paul. How would you like to carry that guilt the rest of your life? When you stand up in front of a church like this and you start to teach about Jesus. When you write letters to people in churches telling them what they ought to do and ought not to do as they follow Jesus. When you get into disagreements with founders and heroes of the faith in the church like Paul did who were friends of Stephen. My guess is that most of us know what it's like to carry guilt 
like that. We've got enough broken relationships. We've got enough broken promises in our lives. Promises we've made to other people. Promises we've made to God. Promises we've made to ourselves. Wounds, washouts in our lives to last a lifetime. And for most of us, it really doesn't matter the source of the guilt. The pain that guilt can inflict is intense. And it can paralyze us. It can take not only the joy out of today, but it can rob us of our future. Paul says there's hope. And it lies in a choice to focus forward rather than backwards. It doesn't mean we deny our past. It's there. It's part of our story. But I believe that when God redeems us, he doesn't just forgive us and ask us to forget our past. He redeems all of our story. I enabled Paul to make bold statements like this one. He says, for I am the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am an apostle. God redeemed his story. All that education, all that history, all that track record he had as a Jewish leader, as a Pharisee, as a vigilante against the church, God used it. It was priceless when Paul encountered groups that wanted to argue the law with him. (laughs) When Paul encountered groups like the Judaizers Darren talked about last week, and they wanted to say, well, the law says, and he goes, you know, they're... I used to be a Pharisee. Let's talk. He knew the law. He could interact with them in a way that many people couldn't. God redeemed his story and used it. None of his story was wasted. None of our story is wasted. The junk of Paul's past simply didn't weigh him down or slow him down in his goal. Let me ask you a question. What was his goal? What was he pressing towards? I'll be honest with you. For most of my Christian life, I misunderstood this verse. When Paul said, I'm pressing on towards the goal. I just assumed that his goal was heaven. Isn't that our goal? But when I slowed down enough to read it carefully, to read it in the context of this entire chapter... I found out it was connected to something else. The entire chapter, as I said before, is built around five words that are found in verse 10, where Paul says his goal is, I want to know Christ. Those words, those five words are the ones that guide all of Paul's life, his thoughts, his actions. His goal isn't perfection. His goal isn't sinlessness. His goal isn't even to get to heaven. That's not the goal of his life. Lately, I've wondered if those five words aren't really all we need for the Christian life. I want to know Christ. What if we made those five words, knowing Christ, our heart's desire? Would it eliminate a lot of the pain, a lot of the sin, a lot of the struggles we have? 
And I think about that question, I also realize that I've gotten a lot of the Christian life wrong. When I think that being a Christian is about getting more involved in church. When it's about doing disciplines like Bible study and prayer. Or getting in a community group or serving the poor. I make it about doing things. Or even make it about stopping those sins that are in my life. Don't misunderstand. All of those things are a part of our life in Christ, but they're not the goal. They're not our focus. They help us with the goal to know Christ. We read the Bible and we pray, but not as a to-do list, not as an item to check off. We read the Bible and pray to deepen our relationship with Christ, to know him more. We come to church, not simply because it's one of many meetings in the course of our week. We do it because as we worship, as we sing, as we spend time together, we know him in a way that's not possible when we're alone. We serve because as we serve, we know the heart of Christ for the poor and the needy around us. And heaven? Heaven's not the goal. Heaven is the place where we will ultimately know Christ with all the limitations and all the restrictions removed. Too many times in my life I focused on the wrong thing. When I'm struggling with sin or weighed down by a problem or a relationship... I look for an answer. I want six steps to happiness, five ways to reach contentment, three steps to go to generosity. And at the risk of sounding simplistic, Paul says, those aren't the answer. The answer is carving out a satisfying life where I know Christ deeply. That's the antidote to sin. That's my source of joy. Now, Paul's not naive. He knows that that's countercultural. In his day, it still is in ours. And that means that sometimes, in order to live this Christian life, we have to make defiant choices. In the last few verses of chapter 3, Paul calls on the Philippians to make a clear choice. He says, you can follow the example that I set, that other believers set for you, or there's another choice you can make. He says, I've often told you before, and I'll tell you again, even with tears, that there are a lot of people who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is their destruction. Their God is their stomach, meaning they just follow whatever desires they have. And their glory is in their shame. In the Greco-Roman culture that surrounded the church at Philippi, there were a lot of things that were deemed as okay that simply weren't okay by God's commands. You looked in that culture, you read history, you find that prostitution associated with idol worship was fine. Celebrations that spilled out into the street involved gluttony, drunkenness, infanticide, extramarital affairs. Just about anything you could imagine was fine culturally. And it had a way of working its way into business and the social scene as well. You want to be a part of the trade industry? You play by their rules. You want to be a part of the social scene? You do what we do, or you're out. Paul says, knowing Christ comes down to a defiant choice. 
to be different. People all around you may live to satisfy any desire they have, but for me, Paul says, I choose Christ. That's the goal of my life. And track the results. Watch what happens in his life when it comes to joy. In spite of whatever he happened in his life, Paul says, I have joy. And remember where he is when he writes that. He's in prison. And remember why he's there. He had raised money all over the region to take back to Jerusalem to help with a famine. When he got there, there was a case of mistaken identity. The Roman soldiers arrest him as he's being attacked by a mob. And he spends the next two to three years of his life trying to secure his freedom for the false charges against him. He's now sitting in Rome, waiting for his appeal to be heard. And what's his attitude? He says, look, what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And because of this, I rejoice. Now, this isn't something he throws out there glibly from some cush mansion. Paul has experienced hardships in his life that you and I will never know. He was arrested, imprisoned, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, lost at sea multiple times. His prayers went unanswered. He had close friends betray him, co-workers fail him. The churches he started, some of them thrived, but a lot of them struggled and some of them failed. But what we learn from watching his life and the choices he made was this, that joy is always a defiant nevertheless. Robert Fulgham, uh, you may not recognize his name, but he's an author who wrote a book you'll probably recognize, All I Ever Needed to Know About Life I Learned in Kindergarten. It's a great book. He's got a life, he's got a website now where he does most of his writing and he tells uh, great short stories there. One of the favorite stories I have of his expresses that kind of spirit where joy is a defiant nevertheless. He tells of a wedding that was produced on an epic scale by an unhinged character that he simply identifies as the mother of the bride. Don't get ahead of me. The logistics of this wedding included an 18 people. You might take notes, Sandy. The logistics of the wedding included an 18-piece brass and wind ensemble. It included a gift registry with furniture listed, and it spread across the country. It also had a wedding party of 24 participants, including multiple ring bearers and flower girls. It was a production of a scale that was only typically seen when a small country was invaded militarily. And all the plans went well until the climactic moment of the wedding processional. And here's how he tells the story. The bride had been dressed for hours, if not days, and there was no adrenaline left in her body. She'd been left alone in the reception hall with her father while the March of the Maidens went on and on and on. She walked down the long tables that were laden with gourmet goodies, and she absentmindedly sampled them. First, the little pink and yellow and green mints. Then she picked through the silver bowls of mixed nuts, and she ate the pecans, followed by a cheese ball or two. Then some black olives, 
followed by a handful of glazed almonds and a little sausage with a frilly toothpick stuck in it. Then a couple of shrimps blanketed in bacon. Then a cracker piled with liver pate. To wash it all down, a glass of champagne. That was given to her by her father to calm her nerves. What you noticed as the bride stood in the doorway of the church was not her gown, but her face. It was white. And what was coming down the aisle of the church was a living grenade with a pin pulled. The bride threw up right as she walked by her mother. And by threw up, I don't mean a polite little erp in her handkerchief. She puked. There's no nice word for it. What she did was she hosed the front of the church, hitting two bridesmaids, the groom, a ring bearer, and the pastor. Only two people were seen smiling. One was the mother of the groom. The other was the father of the bride. Fulgham explains how they pulled themselves together for a much quieter, simpler, gentler ceremony in the reception hall. And how everyone cried, as they're supposed to do at a wedding, and mostly because the groom held the bride through the entire ceremony. And no groom has ever kissed his bride so tenderly or carefully as that groom kissed his bride. But the best part of the story is that ten years later, the entire wedding cast was reassembled, guests and all, for another party to celebrate the disaster. They watched the entire thing on three big television sets because the mother of the bride had, of course, arranged for all of it to be captured in high definition on three separate cameras. And the party was thrown, this is the best of all, the party was thrown by the mother of the bride herself. How in the world could they rejoice when everything had gone wrong? Because when it was all said and done, the groom came back for the bride. And that was all that really mattered. In the end, that is all that matters. Paul says... I want to know Jesus. Not just some sterile words about him on some pages. I want to know Christ. I want to be dialed in. I want to be zeroed in. I want to know him. The way that a bride and a groom are so dialed in on each other on their wedding day that nothing else matters. I choose Jesus. Paul says, 
Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await for a Savior from there. And let's be honest. This life can get really hard. And I've never met anybody in this life who gets a free pass. Never met anybody who makes it through this life worry-free, trouble-free, adversity-free. Have you? We shouldn't expect that. We're not citizens of this world. We're aliens. We're foreigners here. We don't belong here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we're told that at the end of this journey, that heaven's groom is coming back to get his bride. And by his power, he'll make it all right. He'll heal our broken bodies and he'll mend our wounded souls. And armed with that knowledge, we are encouraged, and I think we can, day by day, moment by moment, make the defiant choice. We can choose joy. There's a line in that song that says, I tried to pay for all my successes with all my defeats. There are times that in our thinking we get a little messed up. And I do at least start going through the course of my week and keeping a balance sheet of the things I've done wrong, the things I've done good, and I start getting a little lopsided in living out my relationship with God. Start thinking, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, I'm off track. And then I come to this point on Sunday and remember that that whole line of thinking is wrong. It's not about keeping a balance sheet. It's about grace. It's not about what I've done. It's about what God has done. And that the balance sheet is wiped clean because of grace. And so when we take the bread and we eat it and remember Christ's broken body. We take the juice, we drink it, and we remember Christ's spilled blood. We remember that God's not keeping a balance sheet, that we're forgiven, we're clean, and we're whole because of the grace that he offers to us. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for this reminder for all of us of grace. I'm grateful that you don't keep a record of our wrongs because none of us can stand before you, as Scripture says, if you did. So thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for grace. Thank you for these moments to let your grace wash over us. In Christ's name, amen.